Good morning, welcome to Antioch Church. We you imagine what you're doing later on at the Super Bowl as it's being shown. Imagine you're a party and you're eating some of the snacks. In fact, you're particularly drawn to a salsa dip, tasting absolutely delicious. And so you say to the host, please tell me what's the, uh, what's the secret ingredient in this salsa? And they look at you and say, actually, I, I must confess, I've been a, a little bit ill. So you're expecting them to say, maybe it's, it's store-bought and not homemade. Instead, they say, I've been a little bit ill, and so I was making it, I, I coughed a phlegm up, and it just dropped right in. So I just stirred it around in there. That might, might, that might be the special taste. Now, no matter how much you've eaten or how much is in the bowl, even a small amount of phlegm is going to make that dip entirely disgusting. You're not going to eat any of it. Of a situation, a, a small contamination spreading in the Mediterranean church in the end of the first century instead of the second century AD. Uh, we're going in a teaching series now and from 1 John. John wrote the Gospel of John. He also wrote Revelation. And in this letter, he is writing as an old man to the churches in the Mediterranean. And just like phlegm in salsa, a heresy has started and is spreading and deeply contaminating the local church. A heresy is Gnosticism. Gnosticism says that the material world is inherently bad. It's created by a lower god, a demiurge, trapping the divine spark within the human body. They said that the divine spark could be liberated by gnosis, which is spiritual knowledge acquired through direct experience. Kind of a bit like Scientology. The more knowledge you get progressively, the more special you become spiritually. Now, according to the Gnostics, salvation is enlightenment. It's simply freedom from ignorance. It does not deal with sin. Obviously, this is wrong on many, many levels. Uh, material world, God said it's actually good when he created it. Jesus was God himself. He wasn't a demiurge, as was being said by the Gnostics. And sin is a very big deal, according to the Christian faith. So this Gnosticism was actually spreading like gangrene, and it needed to be addressed uh, fully and robustly. So this is what John does in this letter. He repeatedly, uh, through different arguments, shows what it means to be a Christian. Actually, how the reader can know that they are saved, that they are a real Christ follower. He keeps it simple and positive. In fact, he doesn't mention Gnosticism at all. Although understanding Gnosticism, you can see how uh, the Christian faith counters it. And in this letter, through its five chapters, the Apostle John is calling the readers back to the three pillars of Christian life. That's correct doctrine, obedient living, and a passionate devotion to God. Before I read the text, I ask uh, God to help us. Will you bow your heads as I pray? Father God, please give us the mind and intellect to understand your word here in uh, the first letter of John. Help us in our hearts to believe it, Lord, not just to understand it, but to believe what is written. Father, please help us to apply it to our lives. We won't be a people that just understand knowledge, but we would want to live it out. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We'll actually read the first bit of text. I'm not sure if you're following the news this week. A young lady called Kelsey Carter uh, did something really stupid as a teenager. Now, that is no surprise in itself. I'm sure we can all sympathize with that. What really set her apart and made her make the news was 
she had a face tattoo done of Harry Styles from One Direction. She herself is a singer. She was just releasing a single that week named Harry. She also wanted to sing a duet with Harry Styles. And so she was trying to woo him with a large face tattoo. Not only was it in a really inappropriate place, it was horrifically done. So please, if you get some time, just pray for her. She has a tough future ahead of her. Anyway, it's really common these days for people to try and find a connection with someone famous. Lots of people have claims to fame or saw someone famous. Here's a couple of mine. Uh, My second cousin, Piers Jackson, has two children with Jade Jagger. They were common-law husband and wife for about 10 years. Jade Jagger is the daughter of Mick Jagger. And so at some family events, Mick Jagger would be there. I, sadly, was never at them. Another claim to fame. Uh, I went to the school that... Roger Waters and Dave Gilmore went to there in Pink Floyd. And that's the school, that's the Perth School in Cambridge that the music video The Wall is based on. Finally, my closest friend from childhood, Tom Lane Petter, yes, that's his name, uh, went to Sherburn School in Dorset. He was in the same year and the same boarding house as Chris Martin and some others from Coldplay. Sounds impressive. The reality is incredibly vague connections. And in sharing a connection to someone famous, what's really happening is that person is trying to elevate their social standing. Let's be honest, uh, Jay Jagger is hardly going around telling people, let me tell you about my connection to Andy Doyle. Neither Pink Floyd, neither Coldplay. But not so with the Apostle John in this first letter. Let me read to you the text from 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you may also have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, in these first four verses of the letter, John is saying that Jesus is the real deal. He's also showing that he didn't have a vague connection to Jesus. He's incredibly qualified to speak about who Jesus is, to speak on his behalf. Uh, Jesus was, uh, sorry, John was the one who stood at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. Jesus entrusted John to look after his mother Mary. John witnessed the empty tomb with Peter on the first Easter morning. And there are accounts as well where he saw, talked to, and ate breakfast with the resurrected Jesus at the lakeside. He is eminently qualified to say who Jesus is and what Jesus' message was. It's not vague. John shows here that his really close friends with Jesus. Think of all the times he's talking about actually having seen and heard and touched. Listen to these, verse 1. That which was from the beginning, as in Jesus, we have heard continues, we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. Verse 2, we have seen it and testified to it and has appeared to us, it goes on to say. Verse 3, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Each of these show that John is incredibly qualified to say who Jesus was. And he says that Jesus is the real deal. 
He uses the word we a lot. He's speaking on behalf of other apostles as well. Verse 3, the purpose of this letter, it's not to raise John's standing whatsoever. It's for fellowship. Whenever you see the phrase, so that, in biblical text, that's typically the reason for the text that has appeared before. So in this opening paragraph, the so that, which we see in verse 3, relates to the purpose for the whole letter. And it is this, verse 3, the second part, so that you may have fellowship with us, as in with the apostles. He continues, and our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So this letter is being written to share union with Christ, to share that relationship, that closeness which he had himself with Jesus, is to share the gospel. And verse 4, it says, we write this to make our joy complete. What that means, it's not a selfish thing where they will feel proud about themselves if they shared the gospel. It means that the desire of John's heart, the desire of the apostle's heart will be met which is they do a fair representation of who Jesus is, and people can have a saving knowledge of him. John wants to share this relationship with other believers. John wants to share this relationship with his readers too. He doesn't want to enslave people into a system of beliefs where they have to pay money to get different understandings. He wants people to know the true Jesus. In these first four verses, he says, Jesus is the real deal. He's seen him, he's touched him, his eyes have looked upon him, and this is the message that he gave. I'm going to move now to the second section. So John starts off saying the purpose of the letter, his authority, and it's Jesus is the real deal. Let's read 1 John 1, verses 5 to 10 now. This section I've titled God is Light. You can write that in your bulletins. It says, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If you claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. But if you walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just, and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. Friends, this is a really simple text, although it repeats things a lot. Now hold up a light bulb now. I want you to imagine... Uh, You're in a storage locker, so there's no natural light in it at all. If you have a light bulb in that storage locker, it is on and it works. You'll have light. If there is no uh, light bulb, it's complete darkness. What John is saying here is, look, God is light. If you can see things, if you walk in the light, you have God. He says, but if you're walking in the darkness, you do not have God. Now, light in the Old Testament meant knowledge. Another way of saying this is truth. It also meant purity and holiness. So in the second part of verse 5, when John says God is light, he's saying that God is spiritual and moral perfection. He is the holy 
other. He's completely different from anyone else. By contrast, in this text, we see that people, rather than being liked, we're prone to deceive ourselves. It says here in verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live out the truth. Again, verse 8, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves. Verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar. So people, by our nature, we are evil uh, by nature and evil by practice, or we're sinners by nature and sinners by practice. So God is light. People are prone to deceive ourselves. And so when it's talking about darkness in him, Second part of verse 5, it says, In him there is no darkness at all. Darkness represents anything that's evil or sinful. In the opposite to light, it doesn't represent truth. It represents everything that is not true. Instead of purity, it represents everything that is not holy. So as we go through verses 5 to 10, you'll see the contrast light and dark, which actually means saved or not saved. And as you'll see as I explain the text a bit more now, it means whether we admit that we have sinned or are sinners or whether we actually deny we have sinned or are sinners. Verse 7, a key fact that shows we have fellowship with God. It says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Walking in the light here means that we're reflecting God's perfection. The light isn't actually in us. It's not like some divine spark which we need to release by knowledge. No, we just reflect God's perfection. He is light, and we give a place for that to be reflected. It means that our lives are marked by correct doctrine and a desire for moral purity. And the result of this is fellowship. It means deep fellowship with people. It also means deep, deep fellowship with God. Also talks about forgiveness here. It's a phrase, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. So God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. At the same time, just as light in a dark room gets rid of darkness, God can deal with completely sin. So it says the blood of Jesus. Uh, that means that when Jesus died on the cross, he took the punishment our sins deserved. This is another way of saying this. It's called justification. That means that although we have sinned and will continue to sin, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, our past, present, and future sins are completely forgiven. It's a once-off. It's a complete and utter reset. God looks at us, and although we are still sinful, he says, not guilty. However, as you notice it says here, the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. John continues in verses 8, 9, and 10 to say that actually there's, uh, as people we still will sin. And there's an opportunity to have an ongoing confession of sin. So yes, it's true that we are justified. All our sins are forgiven when we put our faith and trust in Jesus. Which is uh, hinted at in verse 7. But then we need to continue to confess our sins. This is verse 9. If we confess our sins, his faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. It's still necessary to confess our sins to God. Why? If they've already been forgiven. Well, sin warps 
our view. It warps our view of God. We may think that he is distant and angry or unfair, and it warps our view of ourselves. Now, one of the ways we can do this is we could be heavily condemned. We say, I'm a hopeless cause, I'm a fraud. Another way that it can warp our view of self is we may just deny uh, the stuff that we've done. We may deny, well, it's not really a sin, everyone else does it. It often means that we do not want the consequences. The reality of denying sin uh, is not getting the consequences, actually is rather than the consequences of judgment, it's a consequence of forgiveness and increased fellowship. And so it's encouraging here in verse 9, hey, keep confessing your sins to God. Because it causes that reconciliation to God. It causes reconciliation to others. It removes the barrier to fellowship. Now, you could still be saved if uh, you did not have an ongoing confession of your sin. However, the life that God had for you in Christ and his desire for you would not be fully met, as you would not be enjoying the fullness of his presence, a full relationship with him, or a good relationship with others. And equally, you would be being a poor witness. So when we confess, we're actually getting in a position of agreeing with God, that we still sin, and we still need you, God. Help correct our lives, help correct our vision. What's encouraging here, although the Apostle John lived with Jesus, he wrote the account of Revelation, and he's writing this letter in old age, he uses the word we a lot, referring to the whole group of people as believers. So verses 1 to 4, he's talking about the apostles. The rest of this letter, the word we, means us as believers. So he's saying that even he can sin. If he pretends he hasn't sinned, the truth is not in him. He says, if we confess our sins. So he's saying that he himself sins. He's by nature a sinner. He's by uh, nature, uh, by practice, a sinner. So we all still sin. So just as all our sins are forgiven in Christ, that's justification. At the same time, we need to confess our sins in an ongoing manner to increase our fellowship with God and one another, which sin would have jeopardized. At the same point, we still sin. And some ask, well, how is this possible? I'm going to use the three Ps here. So at the cross, when Jesus died on the cross, the penalty of sin, which was death, was removed. Completely paid for. And when we put our faith and trust in Christ, God as Holy Spirit comes to live within us. That means the power of sin is broken. That is the second P. The third P here is presence. The presence of sin in our lives and the world around us is still a reality. So the penalty of sin has been removed. The power of sin has been broken. We're still in the presence of sin. And at times we still sin. And it's really important not to deny this fact. Verses 8 and 10 say that. It says if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Again, verse 10, if we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word is not in us. What that means is that we are not saved. This is a message to the the Gnostics as well within that church in the Mediterranean. It says, look, you've not been uh, freed from a lack of knowledge. You've been forgiven your sins. Don't pretend that you're not a sinner. Because if you pretend you're not a sinner, you don't really understand God who is light and sin, which is darkness. 
So, so far we've looked at John explaining his authority as an apostle, saying that Jesus is the real deal. And then he shares that message in verses 5 to 10. He's saying that God is light. And he's saying, if God is light, then you need to walk in light. And if we walk in darkness, like there's an ongoing direction of chasing after sin, running away from God in our lives, then maybe we don't have God. Another way of putting that as well is, if we know that we have sinned, we know that we are sinners and we still need forgiveness, it's likely that we are saved. If we don't think we have sinned, we have definitely not saved. This third section, we're going to move from 1 John chapter 2, verses 1 to 6. As I read these, this section in my teaching is called Jesus is the Way. continues, My dear children, I write this to you so you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. We know we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands, is a liar, and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. So John's saying that he knows uh, who Jesus is. He's saying that God is light. That's a clear message that Jesus gave. And he's also saying that, yes, you need to admit that you sin and we need to confess our sins. But here is that reassurance from him. He's saying if we do sin, we have an advocate, which is Jesus Christ, the righteous one. Verse 1, you see the affection with which John speaks to these Christians in the Mediterranean. He says, my dear children. And the purpose for this section, he's saying, I write this, you'll not sin. So he wants people to have their life direction, uh, chasing after God, moving to the light, wanting to become more of their new self in Christ and putting away their old self uh, without Christ. But he then says, but, but don't worry, if you do sin, we don't want it to be the main characteristic of our life, but if you do sin, don't worry, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. In verse, 10 he sa- verse 2 he says, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. What he means here is, don't forget you have been justified. So yes, you sin, but God looks at you and says, not guilty. And Jesus, uh, through himself as the Holy Spirit, will help identify areas in our lives that need the light shining upon them, areas that need uh, to heal, areas where we may have a false view of our own identity as a child of Christ or a false view of God. So Jesus is the one who shines God's holy light into our lives. It's important here to remember, uh, God is light. It's about direction not perfection. Now, over the course of our lifetime, we would like people to see that we have been transformed, but we are never going to live a perfect life. That is not our job. That was what Jesus' job was. Continues here in verses 3 and 4 to talk about whether we actually know Jesus. What this means is, do you know Jesus in a way that saves you? Do you know Jesus in a way that forgives all your sins, that justifies you? Do you know Jesus in a way that it's not just a head knowledge, but it actually transforms our behavior? 
Another way of saying this is saying, hey, this is how you know that you are saved. And listen to what John says. It says in verse 3, we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commands. Same point in verse 4, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth, as in Jesus, is not in that person. So the church in the Mediterranean, the readers of the letter will know that they are saved if they obey what Jesus commands. And Jesus commands that we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind. The second one is very much like it. It's we love our neighbors as ourselves. And there's also the Great Commission, which is that we're, we're making disciples of all nations and teaching other people to obey Jesus' teachings. I'm going to hold up a mirror now. So earlier on, I held up a light bulb. I'm going to hold this mirror next to the light bulb. Our role is like to be mirrors as Christians. We are reflecting God's light. Now, on the reverse side of a mirror, there is aluminum powder, and then there is always a dark, non-reflective paint. If I turn the mirror around to the dark side, it does not reflect God's light. That's a picture of us before our sins are forgiven. Then when we've been justified, we put our faith and trust in Jesus. It's like the mirror has turned around. And then we're now naturally reflecting God's light. And we reflect God's light, it says here, by obeying Jesus. It's not just that we are talking the talk, saying, oh yes, I'm a Christ follower. It's that we're walking the walk. It's a real faith that impacts every day of our lives. It continues at verse 5, it says much more positively, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. What this means, love for God truly made complete in them, is that God's love is perfected, that his light is reflected. We become much more like Christ. We reflect his faith. We reflect the hope that he has in people. We reflect a, a devotion to God, a desire to do what God wants us to do in this life. We live a life characterized by self-sacrifice for the love of others. It's Again, it's about direction, not perfection. And this affirms verse 6. He says it another way. It says, this is how we know we're in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Doesn't mean dying on the cross. That's a one-off thing that Jesus did. But it does mean living like him in how we interact with the world. I really want us to take away, this message is known as uh, the light of Christ. A big takeaway as we've looked at Jesus being the real deal, God is light, and then Jesus is the way or he's our advocate if we sin is that we are defined, as Christ follows, we are defined by Christ's light, not our darkness. To say that again, we, as Christ follows, we are defined by Christ's light, not our darkness. This is very reassuring knowledge. John would say it means legitimate discipleship. We are defined by Christ's light, says uh, the faith is in our head, it's in our heart, we believe it, and it's in our hands, it's in how we live. It's not that we just talk about being a Christ follower, but we look like it as well. 
Now, as a church, we have three core ministry values, which you can shorten to encounter, disciple, and mission. Encounter means encountering God. Moses had encountered God. He said this in Numbers 14, 18, God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. So a takeaway in terms of encountering God from this text is to confess to God. When we have sinned, it it distorts our view of God. We forget that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We may have a faulty view of ourselves. We may be condemning ourselves when the reality is there's no condemnation in Christ. Or we may be denying that we have sinned and not be living the full life that God has for us. And so we can confess our sins. It's twofold. One is to confess our sins uh, for salvation. That's a one-off confession. I say to Jesus, I'm sorry, I've sinned against you. Uh, Please forgive my sins. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to live for you. But then there's an ongoing posture of recognizing that we need God in our daily lives. And verse 9 from John says, we can confess our sins. And he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Our second core value is discipleship. Not only do we meet together on Sundays, we meet together in life groups. As a church, we really value people meeting together one-on-one or in groups of uh, three or four. And the purpose of this is to have a really transparent, accessible faith with one another. It's not so we can judge one another. That's God's job. He is the only judge. But it means that we can confess our sins to one another. Uh, We can encourage each other. We can hold each other accountable. And the gift of doing that, of confessing sins, as John says, is much deeper fellowship with one another. When I've confessed uh, some of my struggles with sin to different people, I feel much closer to them and they have a much better view of who I am. In the same way, if if people confess their sins to me, which they have done against God, I am not going to judge them. I'm going to feel closer to them and grateful that they invited me into their healing journey. So if we confess, as this text tells us to, we have a much greater uh, discipleship with one another and with God. And this means we have companions for life's journey. Finally, our third core ministry value is mission. This means that we live life on mission. This is actually what uh, most of this text today has been about. It means that we are reflecting God's light, that other people can see there's something different about us. Other people can see uh, uh, God's goodness and perfection through us. It says in verse 5b, uh, chapter 2, It says, it's almost like we're pointing the way to Jesus. It says, if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. Here's two ways that we can do that. Ask to pray for people and read our Bible or do our devotional time with God in a public place on a daily basis. I say that this is living life on mission as someone that I worked with a very, very long time ago did both of these things. And that's how I got curious about his faith. I saw that he was different. I saw that God's light was being reflected on him, uh, even though I didn't really fully yet know that God was light. He'd asked to pray for me, and I loved to be prayed for. And he would read his Bible at lunchtime, and it would cause many conversations. And these are practices that I've tried as well. 
less so reading my Bible at lunchtime in the church. Uh, when I used to work before going into ministry, I'd always read my Bible during my lunch breaks. You have so many spiritual conversations. You have so many opportunities because people ask questions to share who God is, that he is light. I'm going to ask the band to come back up on stage. The message is the light of Christ. Big takeaway is Christ followers were defined by Christ's light, not our darkness. We can encounter God through uh, confession. We can have greater discipleship with one another through confession too. And we can reflect God's light. We can be on mission if we point to Jesus. And a couple of ways of this are praying for people and doing our devotions in public. But the Christian faith is often against the backdrop of regular daily living. Sometimes we'll hear a message and we want to respond in a very passionate, devoted uh, way to Christ. I think maybe I could go over here or go over there, or climb a mountain for him, or really show that I am sorry, or do all of this evangelism. It actually looks like obeying God in a simple minutiae of our day-to-day lives. So two questions I'd like you to uh, Two prayers, you have a choice of one or the other, I would really encourage you to do at the start of each day this week. Does it need to be a long session? You don't need to be kneeling down in your special holy place in your house. It's a simple 20 or 30 seconds in front of God, if you get that time, saying, Father God, help me be the disciple of Jesus you want me to be today. Father God, help me be the disciple of Jesus you want me to be today. And you will find you get invitations and opportunities to walk with others on their life's journey, to answer questions that people may have, to pray for others. The second question, if you're not yet comfortable to say, help me be the disciple of Jesus you want me to be today, maybe you're in a difficult season of life, whether uh, it's struggling in sin or struggling with the effects of sin, but your, your view of God is distorted. Maybe you struggle from depression, like I do at times. Your view of God and your view of yourself is distorted. And it seems really hard to think that I could be defined by Christ's light and not my darkness. If you, I'd say, pray this prayer. Uh, excuse me, pray this prayer at the beginning of each day. Jesus, help me understand, believe, And live out the fact that I'm defined by your light and not by my darkness. Say it again. Jesus, help me understand, believe, and live out the fact that I'm defined by your light and not by my darkness. Friends, I'm going to pray and then we're going to respond in worship. Father God, thank you that you are light. Thank you that you came on earth and lived among us, that you revealed yourself fully as Jesus. And Jesus revealed this message of salvation, of resurrection, of forgiveness through his life, Lord. Thank you that he shared it with the apostles, that John is sharing it with the Mediterranean church. And by extension, we ourselves are remembering what the foundational points of Christianity are. That God is light and that Christ is our advocate for when we sin. Pray these things in your son's name. Amen.